Just having business data isn't enough. But ZoomInfo leverages that data to unlock useful insights, like who to reach and how to reach them, so you can grow your business. Unlock insights at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. It's the weeds. I'm Jonquilin Hill. If you can believe it, March is almost over. I know. Where does the time go? April has a lot in store for us. We'll be fully into spring, and tax season will also be upon us. But for millions of Americans, this spring will be full of uncertainty that has nothing to do with the changing seasons or the IRS. It'll be about their health care. On April 1st, the process that may kick millions off of Medicaid will begin. That's because a policy that started at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic is now sunsetting. There's no better person to talk to about this than with my colleague Dylan Scott. He covers healthcare for Vox, and he's joining us today on The Weeds. Hi, Dylan. Hey, JQ. Thanks for having me. So... We know that millions of Americans are about to lose their health insurance. Why? Because at the start of the pandemic, Congress passed a really important policy. It was part of that first package of legislation that they passed in March of 2020, you know, as the pandemic was really starting to take off. And one of the provisions in that bill required that state Medicaid programs basically keep everybody on the rolls until the public health emergency was over. And that had a really significant effect on Medicaid enrollment. Like over the last three years, about 20 million people have been added to the program's roles. It's up to about 90 million people total who are covered through Medicaid, which is a huge number, like substantially more people than are covered by like Medicare, the program for people over 65 and who have long-term disabilities. And that has helped contribute to the U.S. uninsured rate reaching historic lows. We're now at the point where quote unquote, only 8% of Americans are uninsured, which is a lower level than we've seen ever historically. The way Medicaid is set up is it's jointly funded by the federal government and the states, but the states take primarily responsibility for actually running the program. So this is going to be a big undertaking for them for two different reasons. A lot of people are going to lose their coverage in the next 12 months. As many as 15 million people, according to outside projections, those are a lot of uncertainty about that number, and it will depend on how this process actually unfolds. But first, there's just going to be people who literally are not eligible for Medicaid anymore. And the only reason that they've stayed on Medicaid is because this emergency continuous coverage policy was in place. But then there's a second group of people who will technically remain eligible for Medicaid. But as states go through this process, for whatever reason, they're not able to confirm that person is still eligible. 
And because we can't confirm this information with them, you know, these tend to be more transient populations, people who might have moved over the last three years. For whatever reason, the state can't get in touch with them to confirm their information, to maintain their coverage through Medicaid. And so they're going to get kicked off the rolls too. And, you know, depending on the projection, some experts believe that like, a lot of the people, maybe even more than half of the people who lose coverage in the next year are going to be those people who should keep their Medicaid coverage but won't because of this administrative friction and just because of how cumbersome this process is going to be. And so, you know, I think looking forward here as, as things are really starting to take off, you know, the question becomes like, are states doing everything that they can to try to keep people who should still have Medicaid on the program? And are they going to do as much as they can to direct the people who are genuinely no longer eligible for Medicaid to connect them to other forms of coverage, whether that's a health insurance plan through their employer or signing up individual coverage through the uh, Affordable Care Act's marketplaces where they might get you know federal assistance to buy a private insurance plan. So the states are going to have a lot of control over how that this process goes. And I think there's a lot of concern that some states won't do it very well. And the worse that states do this, the more people are going to lose coverage. Or conversely, you know, the better that they're able to execute this, the fewer people that will, will lose coverage, which is obviously the goal. You mentioned that we're at a historic low when it comes to people that are uninsured. I think you said it's, it's around 8% right now, which is very low. Prior to the pandemic, where where does that number typically sit? How many Americans typically are uninsured? Do we know? So, you know, that's a number that's been steadily coming down since the Affordable Care Act passed. You know, that was obviously the goal of uh, the ACA. And, you know, over the 2010s, as the insurance marketplaces got set up and people were able to take advantage of federal assistance to buy private insurance plans, and as, you know, most states, not all, which is important for this conversation, but most states expanded their Medicaid programs to make more working adults eligible, we have seen a pretty significant decline. But to give you some context, like in 2019, sort of our last pure year before COVID took over our lives, the uninsured rate was about 11%, um, which was by historical standards, quite good for the United States. Like it's been up closer to 15% if you go back to like the, the pre-ACA days. But still, even from 2019 to now 2022, we're talking about another three percentage point decline in the uninsured rate. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons for that. But I think experts are confident that a big part of that was the fact that nobody was losing their Medicaid coverage during that time. I also want to dig into this idea of who qualifies for Medicaid. How does this coverage work? How much is up to the states? How much is up to the federal government? You know, how, how is all of this determined? Going back to the very beginning, Medicaid passed alongside Medicare in 1965. The final Medicare and Medicaid bill passed both houses of Congress by an overwhelming vote. President Johnson signed the bill, making it the law of the land, July 30th, 1965. In independent Medicaid was, it was always targeted to low-income folks. That was its purpose, was to try to address, you know, the people who were most disadvantaged. But as we touched on already, like, it had this interesting kind of state-federal partnership structure. And that did give states a lot of discretion about who they would actually cover. There are some requirements that are set out in the Medicaid statute. And so, like, people 
who have almost no income are generally eligible for Medicaid. And then there are particular groups of people like children. And that was added to with the passage of the CHIP program in the 1990s, which is sort of inextricably linked with Medicaid. Pregnant women, they actually tend to have higher income thresholds for their eligibility. So like a lot of Medicaid ends up funding, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but like something like four in 10 births in the United States are covered by Medicaid, partly because of this requirement that like pregnant individuals are an important group that states have to cover. In addition to children, a lot of states will cover the parents of young children who are impoverished. The one group that historically was left out was basically like working adults who did not have children. And so that was an important change that the Affordable Care Act made, was that it created a new program category for these working adults, and it allowed people to be eligible for Medicaid if they were either either in or near poverty. Like technically the threshold is 138% of the federal poverty level. And as I mentioned before, like most states have adopted that policy of about 40 states now at this point. And so in those places, Medicaid is pretty close to like a universal healthcare program for people living in or near poverty. But in those like 10 or so states that still haven't expanded Medicaid, they do not have nearly the same, not nearly as generous of Medicaid eligibility. So like, just to give a couple of examples, in Florida for the parents in like a family of three, in order to qualify for Medicaid, you have to have an income that's like 28% of the federal poverty level. So like, off the top of my head, well, that's usually hovering around like $15,000 of income per year. And so what's a fourth of that? Like, you know, you, you get the idea. You're talking about somebody who might make like a couple thousand dollars Yeah, a year. also if you're making like $16,000 a year, you're not exactly like, yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. No, and that was the purpose of the Medicaid expansion program through the ACA was like, we want to make this more of like a universal program that covers everybody in poverty. And, you know, if the people who wrote the Affordable Care Act would have had their way, you know, every state would have expanded Medicaid. It was supposed to be mandatory. But the Supreme Court decided in 2012 that you can't force states to adopt Medicaid expansion. The court has struck down that third part of the decision, that is forcing the states to expand their Medicaid program. But this is not very simple. The way I read this, the court is leaving open to the states to come back and opt into the Medicaid expansion at their discretion. So in other words, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his opinion that the federal government can't put a gun to the head of states and force them to do something on Medicaid. And in the case of Medicaid expansion, that meant that it had to be optional. So we're now here 10 years later at this point where most states have accepted Medicaid expansion, but there are still 10 or so who have not. And those are some really big states like Texas and Florida and Georgia. You mentioned before that there are kind of these two reasons that come April, people would lose their Medicaid coverage. The first is, you know, you get a new job, circumstances change, you no longer qualify. The other is a concern about people being kicked off or unable to re-enroll. Why is there that concern? What's, what's the issue going on there? So I think it's 
a combination of two things. One is that this is just like a challenging, can be a challenging population to reach. Mm. You know, these folks might be more likely to move. English might not be their first language. They may have disabilities that can make it difficult for them to do even like basic everyday tasks. But the second piece of it is like, how capable are states to, you know, reach out to everybody who's enrolled in their Medicaid program mm. to try to confirm their eligibility? And how interested are they? You know, that's that's sort of the other piece of like the, on the one hand, it can be hard to reach the beneficiaries just because of who the beneficiaries are. On the other hand, you know, states can do more or they can do less to try to actually reach those folks. To give one example, the Kaiser Family Foundation is tracking the state plans for this Medicaid unwinding process. That's the jargon that people might see a lot. It's called the the Great Unwinding. And states, you know, are supposed to say in these plans, like, what are you going to do if you send a letter to an enrollee and that gets returned, you know, sender no longer lives there? And most states will say, like, we're going to take steps, whether it's call them, send them a text message, whatever. They're going to take, like, some additional steps. But 11 states say that they're not going to do that. Oh. Um, and so that would be one way that, like, well, you didn't live at the address that the state had on file. I guess you're out of luck. States could mount communications campaigns. They could coordinate with community advocates, you know, people who are on the ground and might come across these people, you know, when they seek out healthcare or for other reasons, just when they kind of interact with the system, so to speak. But, you know, states have to decide that they're going to be proactive about that. And I think we know from the plans that these states have laid out that some are going to be more proactive and, and some are going to be less proactive. When you combine those two things together, that is why it is going to be challenging to verify the eligibility of everybody who is still technically, we think, eligible for the program. But like, you got to check the, you cross your T's and dot your I's. You can't just provide people with public benefits on a belief. And so it is going to be a really difficult task. Um, and states have been preparing for this for more than a year. Like they knew that this was coming, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be, it's going to be easy. And there is a real risk that a lot of people are going to fall through the cracks. I think it's so interesting because like, the government can find you if they want to. Like, the go <laughs> I think of, like, doing jury duty or, like, taxes. Yeah. Like, if the government wants to find you, they will. And so, uh, on one hand, I'm kind of like, y'all could easily find these people. And on the other, it does sound like an extremely challenging administrative task. How much work is it checking that status? Like, is this a really huge burden on the states? Yeah, and I think it is. Like, I don't want to be dismissive of that. You know, all the advocates I've talked to who are on the ground, who are approaching this from a, you know, patient perspective, trying to help those people, like, they recognize, like, the states are being asked to do a lot. We've never really done anything like this before. In regular times, in normal times, before the pandemic, sure, like, people are cycling on and off of Medicaid all the time, but we've never had this kind of, like, directive that, like, we're going to double-check everybody's eligibility over the next year because we haven't done that for the past three years. And so then it becomes, yeah, like how how proactive are you going to be? And like, are you taking steps that make it easier to do that? Because like the first step in this process, before you're sending letters out to people or calling them or texting them or whatever, like states do, to your point, have a lot of information about their Medicaid beneficiaries, you know, on hand. Like, they have income information. These people are eligible for other public programs like SNAP or TANF or what have you. 
And like in an ideal world, states would be able to use that information to kind of automatically check whether people are still eligible without the beneficiary having to do anything. Like this entire redetermination process ideally could be like invisible to most people because the state's going to check with the information that they have on hand. And for a lot of people, they can then, you know, say like, we can tell that you're still eligible for Medicaid. Mm. And then there's going to be some select circumstances where maybe you can't, or maybe you need updated information or something. And those are the situations where you're sending people letters, following up with calls, that kind of thing. But the problem is like states are not necessarily very good at like checking this stuff themselves. Mm. Like that requires, you know, building an entire digital infrastructure where like these different programs can talk to themselves. You're able to pull the information that you need out of these digital databases. Like it requires a lot of like IT infrastructure in order to be able to execute that process. And this is another place where like a lot of states do okay at this, at least. So like 30 states say that they can mostly do mostly automated renewals, Mm. um, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's tracking. But that means that a bunch of other states are either doing this manually, where like human beings are pulling the information, or they're doing like a combination of automated and manual. And just going back to before the pandemic, like this is not something that states were very good at. Like 20 states said that previous to the pandemic, about 20 states or so, so basically like half a states, said that they were able to check people's eligibility through this automatic process. It's called the ex parte process. And so like, that's not like a great track record. No, not at all. (laughs) Um, Like, you know, a lot of people are doing pretty well, but a lot of people aren't. And again, according to uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation, like most states, about 30, have taken steps to try to improve their ability to do this over the course of the pandemic in anticipation of this great unwinding. But that, again, means that like 20 states didn't do anything to try to improve their capacity to do this. And so that's where it's like, we're making it harder on ourselves, at least in some cases. Every step that you're taking in this process, it's more and more likely that somebody's going to slip through the cracks and end up losing their coverage, even if they should still technically be eligible for Medicaid. Next up, how Medicaid logistics got so messy in the first place. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So Dylan, can you talk to us about the logistics of Medicaid just in general? I'm thinking of the federal government and the state government is there any idea of who does what? How does this actually work? Medicaid is by far our most complicated public program, at least that I come across in covering healthcare. But in broad strokes, it works like this. The funding for the program, which is in a way, you know, the most important thing, is almost evenly divided between the federal government and the states. The federal government provides a little bit more, on average, like 60% or so of the funding for the program, and then the states kick in the other 40%, which is still like a lot to ask of the states. Like in, in a lot of cases, it's one of their biggest budget line items. But like the federal government is largely kind of like a silent partner. They set some basic rules about like who needs to be covered, certain requirements for states in terms of things like checking people's eligibility. And, you know, as part of the ACA, states were supposed to invest more in their ability to automatically check people's eligibility. You know, enforcement on that has been pretty lax, according to the experts um, that I've talked to. But that's an example of how the federal government can set up guardrails for what the program is supposed to look like. Now that the ACA has created the Medicaid expansion, it's a little bit more uniform, especially across the 40 states that have adopted Medicaid expansion. But you still have some variation in like, you know, how high the income level goes for like whether children are eligible or whether a pregnant person is eligible. And those are decisions that are entirely left up to the states. That applies here to the unwinding process too. Like the federal government has you know, provided some financial incentives for states to kind of take this slow and be deliberative. They can get like an enhanced federal funding over the next 12 to 14 months as this redetermination process unfolds. That's just kind of the deal that we've made with Medicaid. It's a sharp contrast to Medicare, which is entirely federally funded, federally run. It's a, it's a much more uniform program. But with Medicaid, we've decided to set it up where it's this joint partnership between the states and the feds. And that's given states a lot of leeway to kind of make their Medicaid program whatever it's going to be. And I think that will be particularly important here over the next 12 to 14 months. Why are they done so differently? Both of these, you know, programs, but just the way they're run and who's in charge of them and who has what say is so different. Is there, do we know like why I won't pretend that I was in Congress in the 1960s you know, <laughs> asking legislators what they had in mind. But I think it serves kind of two purposes, ideally. One is it does 
soften the cost to the federal government. The fact mm. that the states are picking up, even if it's a little less than half, that's still a big chunk of money that states are putting into the Medicaid program. And so anytime we're talking about like a major entitlement program, spending is obviously a concern. And so sharing that burden a little bit between the states and the federal government is, I think, one reason that the program is structured in the way that it is. And the other is that like, I think ideally the idea is like states are best equipped to know how to serve these populations. They're most marginalized people. They're most disadvantaged people. It might look a little bit different depending on what state you're in. Um, like who's, who's a part of that population? Who's more likely to be eligible? And hopefully the idea is like we can trust states to kind of tailor their Medicaid program to best serve people in need. I think that, you know, idea has been a little bit belied by like how Medicaid has actually been run over the last 50 plus years. But like, it it wasn't like an unreasonable motivation, I don't think. And, you know, the third piece of it that doesn't get talked about a lot and probably ultimately just isn't like as important, but like by allowing states some flexibility about how to uh, run their Medicaid programs, then like maybe they'll run like interesting policy experiments Mm. about like, like how best to administer health insurance benefits to people. There's all kinds of pilot programs that are run under the Medicaid program by the states. You know, maybe that that's like a learning opportunity. You know, states as the laboratories of democracy, um, you know, maybe they can teach us some things about how to best provide health care, especially to low-income people, by giving them some room to experiment and kind of try to figure out what works best for them. So I think you combine those things together and that explains why the program is structured the way it was. I think another piece of it, to be honest, is, and this is my hunch more than anything, is like, you know, like I said before, Medicare and Medicaid passed together. I think Medicare is and for most of the lives of these programs has always been just more prominent. You know, it's more popular. That's the program that's off limits for cuts. That's the program that everybody loves, that everybody knows will be there for them, you know, when they retire um, or get near retirement age. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) so um, it's not that surprising that therefore the administration and funding of Medicare was put entirely in the federal government's hands. Yeah. Whereas Medicaid, you know, it started off, and especially, you know, 40, 50 years ago, eligibility requirements were pretty strict. We were talking about, like, really people who were, like, didn't have any kind of resources whatsoever. And it's just grown over time, which I think speaks to, like, maybe the virtue of having a more flexible structure. It's grown over time to cover more and more people who are low-income or in particular life circumstances where we want to absolutely make sure that they have insurance coverage, like if they're pregnant. But I just think, you know, it probably wasn't as big of a priority to the Johnson administration as Medicare was. And certainly Certainly sort of in the general political consciousness, it's always been kind of like off to the side when compared to Medicare or Social Security. I think over one of the interesting developments of the last 10 years is like the political power of Medicaid has become a lot more obvious. Like it was a really important safety net during the Great Recession. And then with the expansion of Medicaid through the ACA shortly thereafter, it's just grown to cover a lot more people. It's a lot more integral part of the safety net with these expansions of who's eligible. It's now at a point, you know, the plans that Republicans put forward to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act in 2017 failed, I would argue, as somebody who was there in that case, <laughs> um, failed in large part because senators were not comfortable 
cutting Medicaid spending and having, you know, potentially millions of people lose Medicaid benefits. And that's like a pretty, like, I think that was a real wake-up call for a lot of people, even people who like Medicaid and want to see it to succeed. I think there was always a skepticism that you could really build like a political constituency around it. And I think one of the lessons, especially of, yeah, like the last five years, starting with the failure of ACA repeal, and then with the success of Medicaid expansion ballot initiatives in some pretty conservative parts of the country, it's becoming clear to people that, like, actually, Medicaid's really popular. Missouri is now the 38th state in the nation to expand Medicaid to low-income residents as part of the Affordable Care Act. A lot of Americans have had either their lives or the lives of a loved one touched by it. You know, I have people in my family who are covered by Medicaid. And so, like, I think that is another way in which the program has just evolved, and that is I think also what makes, you know, what we're staring down for the next year or so so startling is like it has proven so successful in covering people and and contributing to this historically low uninsured rate. And now we're going to start to see some of that unwind. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, over the next year because, you know, Congress set this deadline, but they also want states to go really slowly. Can you kind of talk about maybe what the thought process is behind how— Congress wants this rolled out? The Congress, as part of the spending bill that passed at the end of last year, you know, they set up the rules for this whole process. You know, they said starting in February, you can start to check people's eligibility, though most states decided to wait until April. And then starting April 1st, people can actually be disenrolled. They can actually lose their benefits. But the idea was like, yeah, we want states to be deliberate about this. It's going to be hard enough as it is, which is something I heard from a lot of like advocates working on the ground around this issue. It's like, we know this is going to be tough. And I think Congress knew that this was going to be tough. So they wanted to give states a long runway to try to do this. And they actually included some some like special funding or like enhanced funding for state Medicaid programs in order to like encourage them basically to take as long as you need, you know, within reason, like 12 to 14 months is kind of the deadline for getting this done. But, you know, they they wanted states to take their time. And I do think that's a, an area where there's some concern is that like states might rush this a little mm. bit. Like as we said, like it's going to be hard. And most states, more than 40 states are saying we're going to take at least 12 months to do this. But there are a handful of others that are saying, actually, we're going to do this faster. And Texas is the example that sticks out to me. Texas has said that they're going to do it in eight months. And I talked to a, a guy who's part of the Public Health Coalition in Texas. And he was like, it's kind of inexplicable. Like, we don't really know why they've decided to do that. And his best kind of interpretation was just like, the state's attitude is kind of like, we just want to hurry up and get this done. And the administration there is not like particularly enamored with Medicaid. They may not see it as that great of a loss if a large number of people end up losing their coverage. And so they're just going to kind of barrel ahead and get this done as quickly as is at least like reasonably possible. And so, you know, that's where it's like nobody can really stop the state from doing that. Like Congress offered some carrots to try to encourage states to take longer than that. But if a state decides they want to hurry up and do it faster and sort of the consequences be what they may, then that's one of the things that is within their discretion. And that is just a reflection of the way that Medicaid is set up. In the piece you wrote about this for Vox.com, you mentioned something about Medicaid churn. Can you explain to us what that is exactly? 
Medicaid churn is a long-standing public policy problem. And the gist of it is that like the churn that we're talking about is like people might be eligible for Medicaid one month and then the next month maybe they work some extra hours or something, you know, they get a, a new job and suddenly their income is too high and they're not eligible for Medicaid anymore. And then maybe a couple months later they lose that job or they don't work those extra hours and then they're back down to an income that does make them eligible for Medicaid again. And so you have people just cycling on and off of the program all the time. And like this was a a well recognized problem before the pandemic. According to data from 2018, about 10% of people on Medicaid, like millions of people, would cycle on and off the program even within like a single year. It's really annoying because like those kinds of disruptions are, we know that that stuff's not good for people's ability to access and actually use healthcare. Like it's just, it's a burden. Obviously, if you like cycle off of Medicaid, you might just become uninsured. And that means you're probably less likely to go to the doctor, fill your prescriptions, and get the health care that you need. But even just sort of like maybe you're on Medicaid and you're going to one doctor, but then you go on to private insurance and maybe your doctor's not covered by that private insurance anymore. So then you got to find a new doctor. And that, again, it's just like you're, we're creating all of these hurdles that just make it harder for people to get access to health care. We're going to take a quick break, but When we get back, we'll get into what all of this says about other COVID-era policies. Businesses love data. Like, really love it. But is just having data enough? Yeah. Nope. Oh. Because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta. Welcome back to the weeds. So, Dylan, we're seeing this wind down in um, the Medicaid continuous coverage. And I'm curious what's behind that decision. You know, COVID is still around. (laughs) It it hasn't necessarily gone anywhere. Why is this winding down now? The Biden administration announced, I can't even remember now because like time is a flat circle, et cetera. (laughs) But like, you know, the the Biden administration has kind of made it the formal federal policy that come, I think it's in May, uh, the public health emergency will be over. You know, we're kind of making from a policy perspective, this exit from our pandemic footing. Technically, 
this is really getting into the weeds. Technically, Congress, when it passed its spending bill at the end of last year, decoupled the end of the Medicaid emergency continuous coverage policy from the end of the public health emergency. But I think they only did that because they wanted the process to start a little sooner, not knowing exactly when Biden was going to decide to formally end the public health emergency. And so, yeah, I think this is just part of a shift that we're seeing Broadly, obviously, to your point, like people are still catching COVID, people are still dying of COVID. We seem to be really stuck at a at a stubborn level of deaths where like a couple hundred people are still dying every day. But I don't even want to say for better or worse, but just like it is a political reality that like our political system and our our policy infrastructure is certainly not built to sustain that emergency setting indefinitely. The federal government was providing a lot of extra funding to states to help cover the costs of this continuous coverage policy, for example. And as you well know, like we're kind of ending an era, entering an era where like everybody's a little bit more worried about the federal government's finances these days. And so like, you know, it would have been kind of incongruent to both be worried about the long-term fiscal health of the U.S. and also have, you know, this enhanced federal Medicaid funding to keep covering people, even if they might not be eligible anymore. In terms of, like, why now as opposed to, like, why not next year or why not earlier, that's, like, a complicated political question that I don't even feel prepared to try to answer. (laughs) It's obviously true that, like, a lot more people have some kind of immunity to the virus than they did you know, certainly three years ago when this emergency provision was first passed. And like, you know, case numbers, though they can be unreliable because we're not sure exactly how many cases we're actually picking up at a given time, they're down substantially, certainly from the peak of the pandemic, like in the winter of 2021-22. Every life lost is a tragedy. But like it is, if you're looking at this from like a kind of national policy perspective, deaths are nowhere near where they were at the height of the pandemic. And that is partly a reflection of the fact that more people do have immunity. It's 2023 now. Like Biden's running for re-election, presumably in the pretty near future. Um, And so like, I do think that there is a political incentive as well to try to shift into a new normal to exit that pandemic footing, especially because you know that Republicans are going to be hammering, you know, anything that the Biden administration is doing that makes it seem like they're trying to keep us in COVID or in the pandemic is going to be a target of attack for Republicans. And so I think you stir all of that together, just sort of the societal realities, the political incentives, some of the finances that are underlying this, um, and the fact that the pandemic itself is just in a different place now, not a perfect place, but a better place than it was at the worst of it. I think you stir all of that together and policymakers kind of just by consensus, because this was both something that Congress did, partly through the spending bill that passed at the end of last year. And then with the announcement that the Biden administration made that the public health emergency would end here in the spring, there was just kind of a consensus, you know, uh, maybe not something that everybody was totally cognizant of, but it, it kind of bore out by events that like, all right, we're moving on. We're going to wind down some of these pandemic policies that we've kept in place for three years now. We're going to move on and enter a new normal and get things like the Medicaid program operating as they used to. So it comes with a lot of risks, as we've been talking about for the last hour with just the Medicaid unwinding in particular. There was never going to be like an elegant, perfect way to end this because COVID was so disruptive. The government response was so dramatic in some ways that like reverting back to normal after that was going to be a messy 
cumbersome process. And now it's just about trying to minimize the damage as much as possible. What kind of impact can we expect this massive loss of coverage to have? There's a study that I carry with it isn't necessarily intrinsically tied to this, but it's something I was thinking about as you posed that question. There's a study that I carry in my brain with me all the time. They looked at what happened if you just charged a person $10 more for a prescription. Mm. And they found that people were less likely to fill their prescriptions, even a cost burden that's that small. Like we're not talking about like $100. We're talking about 10 bucks had like a measurable impact on how likely somebody was to fill a prescription. And so you can imagine like for this population, people who are low income by definition, that effect might be only more pronounced. And so I think that's what we worry about. I mean, it's the it's obvious maybe, but like, yeah, when people lose Medicaid coverage, they're going to be less likely to get the medical care that they need. And that means that they're going to be in worse health overall. There are things we can do to try to mitigate that. You know, we could hopefully as many people as possible will get signed up for ACA coverage if they qualify for it after losing their Medicaid benefits. But certainly for that group that we talked about, the people who are still eligible for Medicaid, but lose coverage because of this administrative friction, those are the folks who I think could really be in trouble because those are the folks who really don't have the resources to pay for healthcare on their own. It may take us a long time to learn exactly what the magnitude of the effect is, but all of the potential consequences to this are entirely predictable. People who don't have health insurance or who have bad health insurance don't get the healthcare that they need as often as the people that do one of Medicaid's virtues is that it's like, it provides really good coverage. Like for most people, the cost of getting healthcare is nothing. Maybe you have a small nominal copay that's literally like a couple dollars. You basically don't have to pay for your healthcare if you're on Medicaid. And so for the people who be, certainly for the people who become uninsured, but even for the people who might move on to a private insurance plan, that might not be true anymore. That's why that uh, study is kind of lodged in the back of my brain. Because if you add any additional cost barriers to people getting healthcare, some number of people are not going to get that care. And that's going to come with all the potential health risks as a result that we might expect. I'm so glad that you kind of refer to what the states do almost as policy experimentation. Because the initial years of the pandemic, we kind of saw the same thing, but on this national level, you know, we saw the emergency Medicaid, we saw the child tax credit, and even in the private sector, you know, like, you and I, (laughs) we work remotely. We are in different cities and we are colleagues. That's not necessarily something that would have happened pre-pandemic. And in the public and private sector, I think we kind of saw this really kind of, for lack of a better term, cool experimentation when it came to policy, just trying all these new things that we thought could never happen. And I just wonder, was all of that temporary? Is is none of this here to stay? I think obviously we have evidence with things like the child tax credit that, yeah, there wasn't the appetite to make those kinds of policies permanent, even though we saw like the dramatic effect that that had on poverty. That's like kind of unpacking the entire like American psyche (laughs) around welfare and entitlements and that kind of thing. And like, it's a really complex thing. I will just make an offhand reference, um, an essay that I read during the pandemic. It was a guy named Jack Meeserv, who's actually written for Vox occasionally, but this was in uh, Democracy, a journal. He wrote about like our kind of welfare 
puritism and this idea that like we kind of treat any kind of benefit from the government with with a stigma and not only that but like we make it hard for people to sign up for benefits like and that's the kind of administrative friction that we've been talking about with Medicaid in particular but it applies to all kinds of public programs and public benefits like we kind of make it a hassle and i think that is reflective of our like general attitude as a society, not as individuals, towards, you know, government and and government benefits with just like that ambivalence or a hint of skepticism or however you want to characterize it exactly. He was talking and thinking particularly about like the stimulus checks that we sent out early on in the pandemic. And he thought like, he just kind of meditated on like the profundity of that. The idea of like just giving somebody a check It's not earmarked for anything in particular. Here's some money. It's a really hard time right now. We trust you to use it as, you know, you best see fit. And he talked about how that was such like an aberration for America, like, and how we like structure and certainly conceive of and perceive public benefits. At the time, I was sort of like, I mean, I was just struck by that. And like, it it kind of was really clarifying for me about like why we find it so hard as you, as I feel like several of your questions have kind of implied, why we find it so hard to just like help people and make it simple. Um, We would just, we just have this, this, this stubborn reluctance to do that. And, you know, Jack's point was like, Here's at least one example where we did it. I think people who probably listen to The Weeds remember like how popular the stimulus checks were. Like they friggin' were like the defining issue yeah. of the Georgia Senate runoff. Also when Senate they got runoff. them uh, in their account, I know I was like, woo. <laughs> that wasn't so bad Thank either. you. Right. Exactly. I needed that. <laughs> um, but there was nothing permanent there, yeah. right? It's not like we suddenly created like a universal basic income program or something like that. And, you know, even something that was more targeted, like the child tax credits, they didn't have a very long political life because kind of those, those old attitudes, um, that old skepticism, you know, once we got, you know, out of the initial shock of like, oh my God, we're in a global pandemic that like, I don't think any of us ever really believed was possible. Once we got past that, we kind of reverted to our old ways a little bit. And, you know, that's in a very formal way. That's like what's going to happen with Medicaid over the next year. And until Americans kind of come to have a fundamentally different relationship with the government and with government benefits, you know, I think you are always going to have to overcome that that skepticism or that ambivalence that's present among a lot of people, certainly, but I think particularly among like politicians and like until we have a bunch of people in office who think about this program you know i think in the way that like you and i are talking about it there's always going to be this temptation to like rein it in a little bit you know we got to get our spending under control we don't want to discourage people from working like those beliefs even if they are largely kind of beliefs that aren't necessarily grounded in reality are really hard to break you know or to change We've got people who have been in political office for a long time. And like, you think you're just, you, it, those people aren't changing their minds very easily. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it may take like generational turnover, you know, people who have lived through the pandemic in a different way than, you know, people who were already in Congress did. You know, maybe then we'll start to see like the long tail of how COVID might change, uh, you know, public programs and our attitude towards those programs. But it, it was a shock to the system and there were some fascinating experiments. But I do think this compulsion to get back to normal isn't just sort of like in my daily life too. Like it applies to like how we're running programs like Medicaid and it's a really powerful force. But, you know, it comes with consequences. And, you know, for Medicaid in particular, we're going to see those consequences unfold over the next year. All right, Dylan Scott. Businesses love data. Like really love it. 
But is just having data enough? Yeah. Nope. Oh. Because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.